turning today to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 16 and verse 14. 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, verse 14. Let all your things be done with charity. And we're considering today the necessity of love. Now we come just to the last few verses of this great and wonderful epistle. Sometimes regarded as sundry exhortations and greetings, and yet there's much here for us to glean, to challenge our hearts, and to encourage us. We're beginning verse 14, let all your things be done with charity, with love, active love, translated by our King James translators as charity, outgoing love, expressed love, helping love, not just love, not just a sentiment, but active, expressed love. And that's the significance of their choosing the word charity, though it's lost so much of its meaning for us today. Let all your things be done with charity. In all things. So we begin just pausing here before we go any further. Expressed, outgoing love. Love for Christ. Love for Christ which is active. Love for Christ which serves him and honours him and represents him and speaks about him. Love for Christ, which is a life in his service. We say so lightly, I love the Lord. Or does he love the Lord? Or she loves the Lord? Yes, but this is active love, expressed love. How have we expressed love for Christ this day, yesterday, in devotions, in prayer? Do our prayers leap immediately to our needs and our problems? And there is no outpouring of thanksgiving to him and love and appreciation to him. Of course, there sometimes is but there should always be. Let all your things be done with outgoing, expressed love. And first and foremost, and chiefly, love for Christ. And we'll see much of that in the passage before us. Love for the Word. Do we love the Word? Or do we dutifully take it up each day? And make time to read our portion. But with no great delight or appreciation. We haven't reminded ourselves before we did so of the privilege which is now ours. This is the word of the living God. This is the voice of God. This is the infallible revelation of Almighty God, the word of Christ to us and to me in particular, and to my heart. 
This is the most precious thing I have in life. This is the source of the highest knowledge. This is everything. Oh, reflecting on our use of the word. This is the place where I've had my biggest surprises, seen the greatest wonders, had the greatest light and help and warmth and sense of God. Do we come to the word of God with love and expectation and desire? I cannot miss this. I cannot push my time with the word into some tired corner of the day. I cannot sigh and think I must do my duty and read it. This is so much more. Dear friends, I don't mean to say this in any convicting or critical way, but simply for encouragement. Outgoing love, even for what you might think is the inanimate Bible. Oh, but it isn't. It's life and truth. And we have a high regard. Then we run to it and we love it and we find great things as we prayerfully consider it. Love for souls. Love for souls. All people around us. Every time Satan puts into our mind a critical thought about another believer or a member of the family or a colleague, every time there's going to be a negative critical thought, perhaps destructive of that person, injurious, substitute it for a concern for the soul, for an appreciation of something done, and pray for that person. Active love in all things. If only we could accomplish that by the help of God, what a difference it would make to our lives. And there'd never be a gossip among Christians and there'd never be a fault finder, somebody who revels in that. No, we active love. It's a great exhortation, this. Let all your things be done with charity. Express love. How do you express love for souls? You pray. And you encourage. And you make known Christ. Love for the standards of God. Have you ever thought about this? The standards of holiness and life laid upon Christians to voluntarily seek after and follow. Why? Have you ever thought of loving them? Loving the standards of God. Come sometimes to the Ten Commandments and just reflect. What a commandment. Because we know each one is the head of a family of commandments. How beautiful the fellowship and society in general and whatever the location, the company of people, how wonderful it would be if these things ruled. How beautiful and beneficial and love communicating and warm and enjoyable are the standards of God. Long for them. Holiness, again, 
not just a tiresome duty, but the ultimate wonders of enjoyment and happiness to conform ourselves to the standards of God. So love his standards and follow after them. Love husband, love wife, same rules, no critical thoughts. Of course, there are problems that have to be solved. Things come up and we have to correct each other or point each other to a better way of doing something. And all these things can only be done in grace and with kindness because love in all things is to be expressed. Do you show love? Do you express it? Do we do that? Is that our aim and our privilege? Love for children, love for enemies, love your enemies. Of course, for your enemies, love may take a slightly different form. You may find it easier to pity them because of their lost condition, because of their circumstances or whatever. It may be that love, yes, takes a slightly different form, but it's still love. Love your enemies and pray for them. That's one of the hardest commands of the Lord, but it's binding upon us all. And it sweetens us. And under the blessing of God, it may lead to their salvation. Love your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Of course, well, we've spent time with this. Let all your things be done with charity. Don't neglect your heart. That's so vital. Keep thy heart in all things, in all circumstances, with all diligence. Proverbs 4. Are we keeping our hearts? Have I become hard? Have I become cold? Have I become unapproachable? Have I become testy? Have I become difficult? Have I become impatient? Have I lost interest in reaching out to others? In making friends? In helping others? Is that happening to me? I'm not keeping my heart with all diligence. Self-examination. What's happening to me? I must cry out to God for help. For a softer heart. I must remember my indebtedness to him and all that he's done for me and the great mercy of Christ. Why should I ever have been saved? A worm like me. All that I owe. My heart has got to learn to melt again and to be softer and to know affection and respect and patience and tenderness and approachability and having time for everyone. That's what it means. Let your things be done, all your things be done with charity. 
So let's banish complaints, banish criticisms, and seek better hearts for the Lord. There's something in every verse in this passage. Let's pass on to verse 15. I beseech you, brethren, ye know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Know the house. Know, be aware. Consider this family, Stephanus, the first converts in the province. And wonderful words here, they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. The Greek translated addicted means they have arranged themselves. It's literally they have ordered themselves or their lives. And I think uh, it isn't strictly strictly correct, but the King James translation is a touch of genius. Addicted themselves, because that's certainly the sense. That's where it's all going. But they've arranged their lives. I remember a man telling me once, and he was the secretary of a church in Scotland, and he said they were seeking a a new pastor. And they'd interviewed a number of people, and they they thought just the man for them. And they interviewed him, and all was going so well, and he held the right views, and he was a fine communicator. But then he began to give his terms. He didn't like the manse they had. He wanted a manse with more rooms, in a much better location in the town. And he wanted, ideally, to be situated at the end of the town, right up, which was very pleasant, but near the railway station, the transport hub, because among his other requests was he wanted quite a lot of time out, because he wanted to be able to preach here and there and everywhere. Perhaps he was making a name for himself or something like that. And the more they heard his terms, the less they liked him and the less they were drawn to him. And they said to themselves, this is not a man who is going to arrange his life for the work of the Saviour, for the kingdom of God in this place, for this church and its fellowship and its outreach and its work. His terms and conditions seem to be looking for a lifestyle, looking for a stamping ground, looking for a reputation. You come and you say, I beseech you, brethren, Ye know the house of Stephanus. Notice them. Focus on them. The first fruits of Achaia, that they have arranged themselves to the ministry of the saints. You think of the Apostle Paul. Tent making. He was a mighty intellectual. Even naturally, before the Lord got hold of him. But the Jews of those days, as you know, even the intellectuals, even the academics, they had to learn a manual trade, a fallback trade. And Paul's was tent making. And that's what he did in city after city, so that nobody could ever say he was making anything from the preaching of the gospel. 
And when did you do it? If you went to the marketplace daily and preached in the lecture hall of Tyrannus and this one and that one and met people and spoke with them, whenever did he make tents? At night, I suppose. The mighty apostle, so used of God, arranged his whole life so that he would not be a burden and nobody would, it would, there would be no possibility of his ministry being discredited by the unreasonable thought that he was being paid to do it. He dedicated, addicted his life. And I think of somebody who went to see a missionary and uh, he went to the missionary's home and it was quite a large compound and he found almost every room in the house occupied by items that were necessary for the cause. It was a place of hardship, a place of shortage. This room was stocked up with provisions to cover this need. That room was stocked up with provisions for another need. And the whole missionary family was virtually in one room. They arranged their lives for the service of the saints and took all disadvantages and committed most of their living space to the cause. This is what you've got here. I beseech you, brethren, know, consider, note, these are the people to listen to, to follow the house of Stephanus. They have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. I shouldn't give so much respect to those pastors who live well, least of all the phony prosperity preachers, but even the sound men who live so well and make so much, and people foolishly say, well, they should be well paid, they deserve it. The standard of scripture is listen to those who have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. They live reasonably, simply. They're not a great burden. They're dedicated to the cause. Those are the people you listen to. Show discernment in who you hear. That's the household of Stephanus, wonderfully hospitable. There was a church in their house, verse 16, that ye submit yourselves unto such. Listen to them. Submit. The Greek again is the arranging word. That you arrange yourselves under them. This needs some explanation. Don't give ministers undue authority. They don't have authority over your lives. They're not to rule you. They only rule by the word of God. Insofar as they're teaching the word, listen to them, respect them, help them, be open to them. You may be more intelligent than they are. You may possibly be more educated than they are. You may earn very much more money than they do. You may have greater accomplishments. But, says the word of God, be open to their help and encouragement insofar 
as it comes from the word of God. They are not ruling. It is the Lord through the word and they are to be faithful to the word. These kind of heavy shepherding places where pastors go around ordering people to do this or to do that. And people, some of them become servile and they go to the pastor, should I do this? Should I do that? Decisions that they are supposed to make before the Lord for themselves, they're bringing to their pastors. That's ridiculous. The pastor isn't somebody who's endowed with wisdom to make all your personal decisions for you. He's teaching from the word. And he's got to stick to the word. If he exceeds the word of God and mixes it with his own authority and ideas and opinions, he's under the displeasure of God. He's in very serious trouble. I read to you Revelation chapter 22. You know the passage at the very end of the Bible. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. That doesn't only apply to somebody who's trying to add to the scripture literally, it applies to the preacher who's teaching his own wisdom and exceeding that which is revealed in scripture. And similarly, if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy. This applies not only to the book of Revelation, but to the whole Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, which was in olden times the first book of the Bible, the first five books of Moses were one book originally. So you could say that in the first book of the Bible and in the last book of the Bible, the same words appear. Don't you dare add to the word of God or take away from it. And that applies to preachers as well as to people literally adding or taking away from the word. So the preacher who never exhorts but only teaches doctrine is actually in trouble. He's not preaching all the counsel of God. He's not covering all the bases. He's supposed to be preaching the gospel and the doctrine. And he's supposed to be exhorting, warning and encouraging and putting his finger on the problems as the word of God does. And he's supposed to be lifting up Christ and giving a sense of glory and encouragement. He's got to do it all. But I'm rambling from the point, and I come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and verse 16 now, that ye submit yourselves, give, give a hearing to, and take seriously unto such those who addict themselves to the ministry of the saints. And the apostle adds in verse 16, and to everyone that helpeth with us, which really means to everyone who stands with us, to everyone who stands with the apostles. Don't listen to the false teachers. 
We were mentioning this last week, the scourge of social media. Even Christians will retweet and like the comments of people who are false teachers, people who are unsound, happen somehow or other to say something good. And so they get quoted and approved of. Now says the apostle, don't listen to them. The fact that they might manage to say something true once in a while doesn't mean you quote them and commend them. They're false to everyone that helpeth with us, aligned to the apostles. Now verse 17, I'm just going through in a simple way. We're neglecting headings today. I am glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, for that which was lacking on your part, they have supplied. You see, the noises coming from Corinth were not good. You read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians also. They're complaining such a lot. They're complaining about Paul. They're saying he's no preacher. We like our Greek orators. They're saying he doesn't sweep you off your feet with his oratory. He didn't flatter them with words of Greek philosophical wisdom. So they criticize him. They say he works for a living. And they didn't like that. They attack him from all directions. The noises from Corinth, the party men, I am of Paul, I am of Apostle, uh, Apollos. I don't think so much of Paul. I don't agree with him on this. I don't agree. The noises from Corinth were very discouraging. Then there were compromises. Why should we not remain members of an idolatrous guild? If we come out of that guild, we shall lose our trades and our employments. We don't believe in the idols. We just go to the temple worship and we stand at the back and then we leave. We go to the feasts and when they offer food to idols, we don't participate in that. We keep our mouths shut. We just go. But it was compromise. They didn't want to lose their jobs and pay the price of having a Christian testimony. They complained against the apostle. The noises from Corinth were discouraging. But it wasn't the majority of the people. But fortunately, there were three representatives, and they're named here. And they went from Corinth to Ephesus, and they met with Paul, and they said, Paul, the majority of people are walking by the teaching and are cleaving to the Lord, and Paul's spirits were lifted. That's the picture here. I am glad of the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, for that which was lacking on your part, the bad noises coming from Corinth, they have supplied. And then he goes on in verse 18. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Now that little 
phrase, and yours. That's most interesting. Whatever does that mean? Have you thought about that? They have refreshed my spirit. We can understand that. The apostle is mightily encouraged. And yours. How have they done that? How have they refreshed the Corinthians' spirit? Well, evidently, when they were back there in Corinth, these were the three men who kept up the spirits of the majority, despite the complainers and the compromisers who now have been sternly spoken to in this letter by the Apostle Paul. In spite of them, the majority of the people loved the Lord and loved the teaching. And these three men, and perhaps others also, were those that kept up and refreshed the spirits of the majority and held that church through those times when others disparaged the apostolic teaching. I am glad of the coming of these three. They have refreshed my spirit and yours. Dear friends, none of us should be gossips or doom-mongers, but those who refresh one another's spirits. How do you do that? Well, it must come from the pulpits, and it must come in our fellowship one with another. We're active together to increase our sense of God, our sense of his presence, every evidence of his power. We narrate it, and we refresh our spirits, and we proclaim the depths of grace, the wonders of grace and of Christ. And the sharing of God's plans from his words. And the sharing of testimonies. And trophies of grace. Things that God has done. These things lift us up and refresh our spirits. The apostle needed his spirit refreshed. The people needed their spirits refreshed. Therefore value those who lead the way in refreshing our spirits. It's a vital role and a duty of us all. Verse 19, the churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord. Who are these people? The churches of Asia. That's not the continent of Asia in uh, the New Testament where you see Asia referred to that's simply the western quarter of what would be today Turkey it's a much more limited region than the continent of Asia it's the churches in the western quarter of modern Turkey and the capital of that region was Ephesus where Paul is at the present time as he writes this letter. The churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla, what a pair. 
Aquila was a convert to Christianity who was a Jew. With his wife Priscilla, they lived in Rome. Claudius, the Roman emperor, was persecuting the Jews and he drove them very violently out of Rome. So the Jews fled Rome, Aquila and Priscilla among them. They fled not because at that moment Christians were being persecuted, but because Jews were being persecuted. And they went from Rome to Corinth, and Aquila and Priscilla settled there in Corinth. Aquila was a tent maker. Well, under the guidance of God, the Apostle Paul, when he went to Corinth, found Aquila and Priscilla, and they took him into their home. And it was there in Aquila's workshop that he spent the nights making tents. And Aquila and Priscilla helped him. And during the time he was at Corinth, they helped him found the church, possibly started in their house. That's where it all began in Corinth. And then they were so close that when Paul moved from Corinth to Ephesus to begin work there, he took Priscilla and Aquila with him. And they resettled once again at Ephesus. And the church is right now in their house, probably greatly extended, including the workshop and whatever space was available. So Aquila and Priscilla, who'd been for 18 months or more in Corinth, salute you much in the Lord with the church which is in their house. They're prime examples of hospitality. They also dedicated their lives and their home and their workshop and their timetable and everything to the service of the Lord. And they were hospitable in place after place. They're the kind of people you should support and listen to, says the Apostle Paul. Verse 20, all the brethren greet you. Greet ye one another with an holy kiss. The holy kiss, the cultural way in that place at that time of expressing affection, love, respect, solidarity, companionship, helpfulness, a sincere token of all those things. Greet ye one another with an holy kiss. We read in our scripture reading from Romans 12, let love be without dissimulation. That is to say, without pretense, without sham. We're not just pleasant or charming to each other. We respect each other. We have affection for one another. Concern for each other. Prayer for each other. Greet ye one another with an holy kiss. And verse 22, here's a warning for us. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. Let him be cursed, says the first word, 
says the second, the Lord is here. Some would say that Maranatha is the Lord is coming. It's the Lord is here. Let him be cursed. The Lord is here. Here's the warning. If you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, because you've never found him, and you're against him, and you intend to stay that way, or you're a Christian, but somehow or other you've let that heart of yours grow so cold and mechanical towards Christ. Be careful. The Lord is here. You could be under punishment or judgment. The Lord sees. The Lord notes. The Lord observes the state of our hearts that love isn't there, that it's grown cold. If any man love not, notice the full name and titles of Christ, and that instructs us. If any man love not the Lord, Jesus Christ, and you've got to love him, in all his names and titles. Love him as Lord. Say to him, Oh Lord, how thankful I am that thou art my Lord, the governor of my life, my director, my guide, my instructor. I love the fact that he is my Lord and I will submit to him and bow to him and listen to him and obey him in all things. Some of the charismatics get it all wrong. They say, liberty, liberty, liberty. Any rules in the Christian life, that's legalism. No, dear friends, He's my Lord. I will obey everything he says. I am under him. He's Jesus. He lived as a man on earth. He took excruciating agony for me. He suffered and died for me. I love him as Jesus. Christ the anointed one of God, the one qualified and anointed, eternally God, who is my Lord, Saviour, the anointed one. I love him in all his offices, prophet, priest, king. That's the target, that's the aim. If any man love not the Lord, Jesus Christ, then, verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The undeserved favour of God be with you. Today, this week, my love be with you all 
in Christ Jesus. What wonderful words they are. Paul loved the readers of his letter. This isn't just an empty sentiment. Paul loved the Corinthians. Paul felt for them, desired the very best for them, wished their blessing every day and their fruitfulness. Paul loved the people to whom he wrote and who heard his messages. Why to have an apostle in those days like that, to have a husband, a wife, a guide, a teacher, a pastor, who loves the one to whom he speaks and feels for that person and wants always the very best for that person. My love be with you all. He meant it in Christ Jesus. You see why I called these sundry greetings and sundry statements the necessity of love.